I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Topcon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Several decades ago, soil scientist Ray Ward of Kearney, Nebraska, recognized the need to take a different approach to evaluating no-till fertility recommendations. After many years of extension service and working in commercial labs, he struck out on his own and started up Ward Laboratories, which has become one of the most well-respected soil testing labs around. For this podcast, Ray sat down with Daryl Brugging, who's filling in for no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter, and shared stories about how and why he started up his lab, how it has expanded over time, and his thoughts on why it's been so successful. He also shares his insights on nutrient management practices and explains why he thinks more farmers should be using sulfur, the problems he sees with fall application of nitrogen, and much more. It would be good to know a little bit about the company's history and really how you got involved you know, in nutrient management, kind of just to know how the company came about and how it's evolved through the years. It's, it's very interesting in my life because I was going to farm when I was a kid. I never even took chemistry in high school because I was going to farm. And then the principal said, uh, I got a scholarship to Fairbury Junior College. And so uh, I went to Fairbury Junior College down at Fairbury, Nebraska in 1955 and uh, got my two-year degree. Well, I went to, took, took agronomy class the first semester. And one time we went out in the field and did land judging and and the teacher said, you could get a job working for Soil Conservation Service. And holy cow, I was, you know, grew up with all the tillage and all the erosion and, and I really caught interest. And so then I went to University of Nebraska-Lincoln and, and got my Soil Conservation degree. And I worked with, with uh, NRCS now, SCS in those days, to make sure I had a good job. And I got, got a job in Washington County, which is just north of Omaha and it's supposedly the county with the most terraces in it. As a work unit conservationist, and I had to take a physical. And the doctor, uh, I didn't go to that doctor in February, but I, I went to him and took my physical back to the guy. He asked me what color the wall was, and he had a painting. He wanted me to identify certain things, colors in the painting. And he said, we can't hire you because you're colorblind. And in those days, they colored the maps, the soil, the, the farm plans, were green for class one land and, and blue, and then red was class four land. And I guess that's why you needed to be, uh, I can identify a lot of properties of soil without looking at the color. So, and I tell farmers, that was the best thing the government ever did for me. So I went back to, to Lincoln in the fall and saw my advisor and I said, you know, I didn't get a job and I don't know what to do. And he said, you want to go to grad school? I got an assistantship, you can start Monday. and. And so I got registered and, and got a two-year degree, a uh, master's degree in, in, uh, in soil fertility. And then Paul Carson from South Dakota State called about time I was writing my thesis and I needed to find a job. And so I interviewed for a job in South Dakota State and got, got that job as, as lab manager. And so I was running a soil testing lab and with meeting the other people, other soil testing people in North Central Region, decided I needed to do a PhD. So I got my PhD at South Coast State in 72. Then the Dean of Agriculture hired me to go to an irrigation station that South Coast State just got from 
Bureau of Reclamation, they're going to bring water from the Missouri River north of here over to Redfield to irrigate a couple hundred thousand acres of land. And then Oklahoma State called and said, we are interested in soil testing jobs. So I went to Oklahoma State as an extension soil specialist managing their soil and water laboratory. Dr. Billy Tucker was my boss. I told him one time that if I got a chance to run a commercial lab, I was going to do that to show the commercial lab people how to make good recommendations because it was just terrible what was going on in a lot of the industry. So then uh, Servitech called and they were looking for somebody to start a laboratory. So I went to Dodge City, Kansas in 77 and we designed the building and then designed the laboratory and then you got the lab benches put together and I hired a bunch of people to teach them how to do you know, the, the different methods and, and had to teach them how to run the equipment. You know, in the other places there were people there, so you, but this is all brand new. And then I, we got started, no samples come in. So I had to learn to do sales work. Then after we started making money, then my wife and I said, why can't we move back to Nebraska, our native state, and, and start our own business? And, so in 83, we moved to Kearney in Nebraska and, and uh, got into a, well, a three, a three bay garage in the fall of 83, November, December. We run a couple, couple thousand samples in a three bay garage and uh, got into a lab in January of 84 and leased a building for five years at 3,500 square feet. And then the banker said, uh, you could cash flow $1,000 a month if you had your own building. And so I got his attention and we got this property out where we are now. And we're trying to increase businesses. So I got some, some lots really cheap and, mm -hmm. and got started. But we doubled the size of the lab to 6,000 square feet. So we were employing four people, myself, my wife, and two other people at the time we moved out here. And, and of course, everybody was interested in employment. Mm -hmm. Then in uh, 2000, we had run out of room. And so we added on 9,200 square feet. And we kept hiring people, and and then the equipment was getting more technology, uh, easier to run things, and, and not as much labor, and so we could really uh, start improving, increasing volume, and and we got to a place where in, in 15, 2015, we added on another 17,000 square foot. So now we got 32,000 square feet of space. Uh, a couple of years ago, we run 410,000 samples in our laboratory. About 62 or 63% of that is soil. And now, now we got the soil health thing coming in. And so that's, that's a little bigger percentage, but uh, soils is, it still runs about 65% for soil and soil health kind of thing. So, and we do feed. Well, when you live in Nebraska and the Sandhills close by, you're gonna have to do feed testing. And I found that out right away. Water testing is very important for the nitrate because when we moved to Kearney in 83, nitrate in the groundwater in the Platte River Valley was going up one part per million per year. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of talk, discussion about all that stuff. And I made water testing really cheap and, and over time become the laboratory choice for home brewers around the world. With the soil health, we're, we're also uh, worldwide now. And, and uh, last week, one day I reviewed 15 samples from Japan and we get samples from Australia, South Africa, Ukraine. We get a lot of samples from Ukraine. So it's just interesting uh, kind of things that, that how the how water laboratories have developed. So now we got uh, about 40 people that work the year round and then and we hire about 30 more in the fall, our busy season. So we're up to about 70 employees now. 
What what today more or less is your role as it's changed? I know you you got your grandson involved in it, and tell us a little bit about getting him on board. That's 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 the plan. The succession plan is to to get Nick in here. And my take on it, uh, I don't, I don't know how long I'm going to work and and that, but I plan on working a long time. But I wanted uh, my grandson kind of run the company, make mistakes, and so. So I kind of sat back, I'm chairman of the board, but he's kind of running the company and hiring and firing and, and ordering equipment and all that stuff and, and supervising. And I, you know, I look at a lot of results. I take a lot of phone calls. I do speaking engagements and all those things and, and kind of guiding him. And, and so, so I think it's gonna work good. And you know what, some people, they, they say, well, it, when when Ray leaves, they don't know what to do, and I guess stay here and get that pass that they look at at ward laboratories, or maybe look at Nick in the future as mm -hmm. as a person to go to. Because I told people I'm interested in helping farmers and ranchers uh, with their input costs, and and I said I got to make enough money to survive. But but the but the business is not about making money; it's about helping farmers and ranchers. So I got two rules in business, running business, and. The first rule is uh, the customer is always right. And you know what rule number two is? Refer to rule number one. That, that's good to hear that approach, but you haven't just stayed within the walls of the business. You know, especially when it comes to talking about no-till and, and relations to nutrient management, you've really been out there a lot. Was that really important for you to be able to, to be out and, you know, speaking to people? And it, that seems like it was a big thing for you to do. It, it, it's interesting how that how it evolved because when we moved here, then the crop consultants would have me out to talk about fertility and soil testing because a lot of people weren't soil testing yet in, in 30, 36 years ago. So there's lots of education just on doing those kind of things. The Kansas, what, what really got me started was, uh, I was friends with Dwayne Beck and Dwayne and I had the same major professor for our PhDs at South Coast State, Paul Carson. But uh, so Dwayne said, the Kansas taking a bus trip up to see his research farm at, at Pierce, South Dakota. And, and uh, they said, you got to stop at Ray Ward's laboratory. So they would stop here and we would discuss soil texture. We'd show them instruction and show them the lab and have pizza and then they'd go on the pier. And, and after about four years, I said, can I go along? And, and, and I think I paid my way the first time, but and then I started describing uh, the land formation, you know, the less hills that stand almost straight up and down, the sand dunes, uh, the rounded hills of the clays in South Dakota, and then the glaciated area of eastern South Dakota. I could explain what they're seeing. And uh, talking about no-till and carbon nitrogen ratios and all that getting started and invited to go to Salina to talk there, and then other people started having me out to talk. Dwayne uh, would say these things about no-till farming, and, and it just was really difficult for me to understand that because I, I grew up as a, we did plowing and all that stuff, and, right. and over time, uh, and then they would do some research, and I thought, man, this is going to be great, and then deep ripping and those kind of things, and they get, wouldn't get any response to it, and then you wonder, what in the heck is going on? And our farm down southeast Nebraska in 1991, it was so dry. We had tall corn, but there's no ears on it. It just dried up. And, and I knew that we had to start saving water. So I was trying to figure that out. And then I got converted to no-till uh, on September 19th, 1992. It's kind of the, the day I was talking to Martin Jorgensen, who was Brian Jorgensen's father mm -hmm. in Ideal, South Dakota. And then Martin said, 
we can't afford to grow wheat, hardly. And, and when I was at South Dakota State in the 60s, it was all summer fallow wheat area. And then they're growing a crop every year, doing the, the no-till type stuff. So, so it really impacted me. And so then I told my nephew, we're gonna start no-till farming. And then he said, I gotta disc everything and level it. So I got, we got started in 94. And, and so a lot of the stuff I talk about, I relate to what we do on our farm in Southeast Nebraska. Pretty powerful, I think, to a lot of farmers. So for a long time, you probably first was hearing about no-till. Did you have a negative reaction to it or what oh, was yeah, it? Yeah. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. Right. So that that was, so Dwayne was, it sounds like was a pretty big influence on you and the Jorgensons were, you saw what was going yeah. on there. The, yeah, Dwayne was really, really the impact. He would say the dumbest darn things. And then I'd go home and think about it and figure out what he really meant. Mm -hmm. And so it made a lot more impact on me. And it's just a, it's just interesting. And, and we're, we're doing the cover crops and, and, the, and the thing that I, I want to reduce my input costs. And, and the biggest, in, you know, the biggest thing we got going on is how many pesticides we have to use. In the fertilizer, the nutrient part, we can get more efficient with the healthy soil but we still need to replace the nutrients we take off. And I think that's really important part of this, understanding these things. The people that graze and those kind of things, well, they don't have to use many nutrients because when the animals graze, they leave about 90% of the minerals in the soil, so, or on the soil, I should say. So it makes a big impact. The bigger the yields, the more stuff you take off, the more stuff you got put back on. Right. You know, as you saw no-till and you started transitioning your own farm in the 90s, what um, what kind of changed your mind overall? Is you know, are there some and you kind of talked about this a little bit, but are there some things that really changed your mind about no-till as you watched and tried to make the transition yourself on your own farm? Because you know the third, first thing I said, I need to save water, and 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 that's when I finally got convinced that no-till is you know the biggest culprit we never talk about is evaporation, and and when you keep the soil covered and keep it cooler. It's in the shade, so to speak. Right. It's cooler and that stops evaporation, so you got more water. But but what I noticed when we went to, when we started doing no-till, how much soil we're saving. But when you talk about soil health, soil regeneration, no-till farming, what we're really doing is generating or saving soil and making new soil and those kind of things. And the, the big picture is we gotta save the resource for food production. And, and so my impact was that it really reduced erosion. Is, is there kind of an overreaching um, message that you've tried to get across through the years when, when, you, when you're talking about no-till and nutrient management practices? And when you, when you look back, what is kind of the overarching message that you would you'd have for folks? I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to help the farmers and ranchers make input decisions that was economic, and environmental safe. So, so that was just a combination of using what you needed to use without being excessive at it. And do you feel like, especially in the past almost three decades now, that you've been able to influence farmers, you know, to consider making the move to no-till? I don't know if I've influenced them, but the influence is there because you drive down the interstate now and you don't see near the tillage in, in most of there's hardly any tillage done now. I don't know, I, the statistics sometimes, I don't worry about those things, but just driving around, people are conscious that, that there's better ways to do place, do things. And as, they, as, as a mother nature gets 
more resistance to the chemicals, we got to continue to do better things. And, and, and in my case, it's really awakened me to, when that Palmer amaranth comes in and it's giant and just a mess, it really gets your attention on what's going on. The cover crops, I think, is an important part of that. Uh, we need to diversify our rotations. And, and you know, the, the sad part is that what really made no-till easy was Roundup. And now we're past the Roundup thing and we got to figure out how to, how to do, do stuff. And... We'll rejoin Daryl and Ray in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. From planning to precision machine control to NORAC boom height control monitoring and mapping to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. To find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched and ease of use, visit topconpositioning.com forward slash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. In the early days of no-till, plant pathologists were certainly not fans of the new practice. In the 1960s and 1970s, their answer to plant disease concerns with no-till crops was to plow under the residue. By doing so, they maintained most plant disease concerns would go away. Even today, with numerous fungicides on the market, there are still plant pathologists at universities who believe you can plow away many plant disease worries. To many of them, no-till is still a dirty word. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Daryl Bregink and Ray Ward. I do kind of want to get back to the to the farm and, and your experiences there and growing because obviously growing up on a farm influenced you. Just tell us a little bit about your about your home farm and maybe uh, significant things that changes you've done on your own farm through the years. How you changed your style of farming or what you did and, and the influences there. As a general farm, you had hogs and cattle and cows and chickens and all that stuff. Dad, Dad grew sweet clover as a nitrogen source. And, and of course we had alfalfa because we had the cows. And so, so the rotation was oats and wheat and corn and milo. In the fifties, it was pretty dry. Dad would grow corn on the bottomlands and milo on the uplands. And, and that was because the soil was getting so bad that the corn wouldn't grow very good on those hills. We grew sweet clover and alfalfa and and to cultivate the hell out of the soil. Bottom land, that where the corn really grew good, you know, the ears are tall as I was. And then every summer, we'd, it'd get dry and the corn would just fire up like that. And I went to college, found out that was nitrogen deficiency, not moisture. We grew a lot of, lot of wheat and oats. We planted oats so we could transition to plant alfalfa. And we keep alfalfa in three to four years and then rotate out of that. You know, we milked cows by hand and, and we sold the cream and gathered the eggs and sold those. And that's how we fed ourselves with, with that. And if we got some crop, with it, then Dad bought some machinery and stuff. But we had Alice equipment, you know, the WD and WC and WD and the five foot Alice combine and the round baler. And, and that's kind of how we, how we lived. And, 
I think it's probably interesting when you go back to those days and, and how fertility was. We're kind of coming full circle, don't you think, in some ways with what we did back then and now what we're starting to think we should be doing today. And Because fertilizer was too expensive. That, you know, they didn't want to spend any money. They didn't have any money, so they didn't want to spend any more money. And, and then anhydrous come out, and anhydrous is cheap. And in, in 1972, I saw some data that anhydrous is five, nitrogen, five cents a pound. 200 pounds of nitrogen was 10 bucks. They could put on, I, I suppose, 80, it seems like dad was always putting on 100 pounds of anhydrous in those days and growing 60 bushel corn. And, and so, so the efficiency wasn't real good. Um, phosphorus kind of wasn't heard of at that time. I was just thinking too of the transition where, you know, back in the day where we started moving more into synthetic fertilizers, right? I mean, there were both good and probably some bad things about that, do you think, or, or not? How would, you well, know, the, with what has, what has transpired? In Nebraska, especially, uh, zinc was a big problem. So you start putting phosphorus on, you create zinc deficiency. So, so we learned early in, the, in that late 50s and early 60s, uh, and my master's work was on zinc phosphorus interaction. We learned to put some trace elements right away, along with phosphorus. And, and uh, in, in fact, the extension guy in the 50s uh, thought we were having phosphorus toxicity from putting phosphorus in the starter until he discovered it was zinc deficient. But, uh, you know, those, those kind of history lessons. And the problem is that when you put manure on or biosolids, whatever you want to call them, that all those nutrients are in there. And I don't know how many people understand that when you take anything you take off the land in organic, like, you know, crop, whatever it is, there's plant nutrients in there. It's not just the carbon or starch or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's all the plant nutrients. And as animals, we eat the food to get the energy to keep our, our functions going, to keep our temperature up to 98 and all that energy. And, and what do we do with the minerals? Well, the, the cells replace their minerals, but, but we don't retain minerals. We just, you know, crap them all out. And now they, they're dumping in a landfill. It's just the strange things that we think about. And all those plant nutrients need to be going back on the land. Well, the other sad part was that in, in 19, 1983, when we moved to Kearney, those the feedlots said, there's no value to that manure. You still need to put on 200 pounds of ammonia and, uh, and 100 pounds, 1846. That was the mentality of the industry at that time. And ironically, when we started paying attention to manure, when I come here and started making recommendations, mm -hmm. the manure concentration had not changed from what it was in the 60s when I was at South Dakota State. <laughs> the industry, it, it was easier to put fertilizer on than to pitch the manure out of the barn, so to speak. And, and haul that stuff. And, and they just called it waste. And down in Hereford, Texas, I thought of great big mountains of manure piled up. Mm -hmm. They were going to burn it and all those kind of things. So and all they had to do is put it back on the land where yeah. it come from. Do you feel like we're starting to get more in balance with oh, how yeah. we are working with nutrients right now? If you were to define balance, what would be um, ultimately what growers should be looking to do with all the different options that are available to them. When you say balance, it, it kind of goes back to what I relate to the to farmers. You, you know, how much diesel fuel you put in a tractor tank. And how do you know if you need diesel fuel? You know, there's a gauge. Do you run it over, make a big mess? So the soil tests are the gauge for nutrients. And, and to balance, you'd, you'd want to fill them all full. It, it's not 
a balance of you put this much of each one of these on. If this test is high, you don't put any on. If it's low, you put more on. And, you know, so the balance is fill in a tank full for each one of those nutrients, right. so to speak. And, and, and granted, there's lots of you know inaccuracies in that because we're we're testing the soil for five minutes to two hours that the plant's taken 120 days to decide what to use. And so, but I think it's a very good guide managing your nutrients. And and so then, yeah, if you if you look at each nutrient and put on if you need it or do not, then that would be the balance. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about, we don't want to talk about balance because that implied that you're going to put everything on where well, you don't need right. to. Depends on your soil. But I also think of balance. I think of using the, the tools that we had before we had synthetic fertilizer, but we also have synthetic fertilizers to use. So it seems like we're going back and utilizing some of those things we did 60, 70 years ago, yeah. but yet we're still using you know, the, the good things about synthetic fertilizers as well. And, and, and the, the nice thing is I'm working with a young, young farmer over at uh, Wood River. He's taking the ponch from the packing plant in Grand Island. He's trying to compost that with some carbon, corn stalks and, and, and that kind of stuff. He found out the pH of that ponch was too low. He didn't get the right uh, fermentation. So he went to the coal-fired generation plant and he's getting their, their waste, what is that, whatever they call that. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's mixing that to raise the pH so he gets better fermentation, better uh, composting. And, and these are the young guys that are leading these things now. And so, so to me, it's, it's pretty darn exciting because the old guys don't want to mess with it. But here's a coal plant. They're happy to get rid of some of the stuff. And, and we need to, and, and the packing plant says, we're tired of just taking it to the landfill. I think you're going to see more and more of those kind of things. And as an organic, as an organic movement, there's, you know, there's a big movement on, I think, for organic and, uh, I don't necessarily know if that's the right thing, but you got to put nutrients on. And, and the organic people have to get their nutrients that's gone through animals, I guess is the way to say that. Mm-hmm. And, and so not everybody can be an organic farmer until we get our nutrients back from China or Canada or wherever, wherever we're shipping our grain to. That has to be recycled back. And so those ideas, I don't know how you get that across to people, but... It's, it's pretty simple when you think about it. But. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of turn our attention maybe more specifically to some nutrient management things and you know, maybe talk a little bit about some misperceptions that people have around NP and K or even with some of the you know, macros and some of the micros in that. And, and so what I, what I want to start with, when we think of the different tillage systems we've got, you know, whether it's moldboard, full width tillage, you know, chisel, but all the way to, to no-till. Does tillage impact perhaps your nutrient levels in your soil? Does it impact different nutrients in different ways based on what you're doing for a tillage practice? That's a, that's a really good question. And the first, first thought was if you're, if you're losing soil, you're losing nutrients. That's the sad part of it is uh, and second thought is that when you do tillage and you have the soil bare, every, every raindrop is pounding on the soil, breaking up and dissolving the glues that are holding the sand silt clays together so that it seals the soil so you get water runoff, which causes more soil erosion and those kind of things. Or it separates the sand silt clay so when the wind comes up, it blows easier. And, and we see that in, you know, in the summer fell areas in western Nebraska. You get an inch of rain in that afternoon 
that's already moving, is it? Because the sand particles erode the easiest, and it's a wind erosion. Nutrient availability, uh, is it, as we're finding out with the soil health, is, is geared toward microbial life. And so you, so you have the chemistry precipitates, but if you have microbes in there, eating and, and working on those, then we'll keep that more soluble. And as, as people, as other things heat them, they'll release the, the, the minerals released for the plants. If we, with a healthy soil, we're going to better efficiency of our nutrients. And when people say, well, the phosphorus is only 20% available. Well, that's baloney because it's all available. The plant roots can't get to all, every ion. And so they're there for future crops. So you never really lose it. Nitrogen, 30 to 50%. Can you imagine if you put $100 of nitrogen on and $50, $50 of those are flying away somewhere, why would you want to do that? And, and when somebody says um, your fertilizer is only 30% available, there's something wrong. And, and you better figure out what that is. And that, and of course, that's how we can help. And, on some of that in testing. But to, to allow it to go to groundwater is stupid, you know, as, as has happened. And, and if it goes in the lake or, or in the rivers, goes to the Gulf of Mexico, and you got that huge hypoxia area, well, what the heck? Mm -hmm. it, uh, the impact that we have in nutrient management, but with, with stop erosion and improving the soil health, you're gonna make your nutrients more efficient so you can reduce the rate and still get the nutrients for that crop. If you've got a better, healthier soil and you've got uh, a no-till system, if you're not disturbing your soil life and you've got a lot of biological activity, what impact does that biological activity have? I mean, do microbes that need to feed on what is in the soil, but do they give back at the same time? Or the, how do they impact the fertility management? The microbes are there, and if you, if you mismanage your nutrients, you, you're gonna have a different population of microbes. And, and the number one is that when you put too much nitrogen on, you increase the bacteria, and the bacteria have a low carbon-nitrogen ratio, and they're demanding carbon, and if you don't have enough carbon going in, they're gonna eat the organic matter, that kind of scenario. So, I had a, had a farmer said, I've been no-till in five years, and my ground is really hard, then he sent a Haney test, saw, saw in for a Haney test, and you know, looked at the CO2 respiration, really good, indicating good microbial biomass. Mm -hmm. I looked at the water-soluble carbon for the food, and it was pretty low. And then I looked over at his nitrate test, and it was 66 parts per million, or 150 pounds of nitrate in top six inches of soil. Yeah, this is a problem because mm -hmm. bacteria love nitrogen. You know, that's how you got to use inhibitors in ammonia form so it doesn't go to nitrate. So bacteria love nitrogen and at the expense of fungi. And the fungi are the ones that make the glues that hold the sand, silt, and clay together. If you manage your, your nutrition properly based on your soil levels and that kind of thing, then you keep that, the microbes in balance, if you want to call that balance. And, and, uh, so that really is helpful. But, but again, if you do wrong, then you can throw things out of balance in that, in that soil microbe population. And then, you know, that, then the other part of that microbial population is that, that they're very short-lived, you know, maybe hours. That's why you need cover crops, because 
40% of the carbon or the carbon that the plants take in is leaked out of the root system. They call it exuded out the roots. And that's food for the microbes. So, so to keep this microbial population functioning and, and doing all that is why the cover crops are come in. And why that's, you know, the soil health part of the yep. cover crops a big part of that. Sure. And now you got guys trying to interseed at four to five leaves, you know, and all and growing 60 inch corn and trying to get more sunlight to the cover crops. Mm -hmm. and, and the cover crop, you know, as a farmer, you think, my God, that's, that's great. It's eight foot tall or something. That has nothing to do. If you got three or four inch tall stuff, there's roots there and it's putting carbon in to feed the microbes right. to keep them going. And if you don't feed them, how would a cow be if you didn't feed her? Right. You know, it's the same kind of concept. Talk about, uh, maybe let's talk about N, P, and K specifically. I want nitrogen. Let's talk about that briefly. What do no-tillers need to know about nitrogen? Um, in a no-till system, does timing of application matter? Does the form of nitrogen, are there any common misperceptions that you see out there that you're trying to change the mindset of farmers on how they use nitrogen? I was quoted in a Nebraska farmer three or four years ago at a field day. I said, I think it's time farmers started doing chores again, feeding the crop when the crop needs to be fed, not feeding the crop when you want to. You know, if it's possible, logistically, I would say ban all fall applications of, of nitrogen, mm -hmm. not, not, not necessarily phosphorus and potassium, but, but the nitrogen and, and uh, put that on when the crop needs it. The form of nitrogen and how you put it on, I don't think is as critical. I think you do not want to spray liquid UAN solution over residue in the spring when it's kind of moist and, and then you get hot dry winds and stuff. It's just, you don't want to put it on frozen ground either as, a, as they discovered in Montana. There's a lot of nitrogen loss at those times. And we stream on nitrogen on our farm, stream it on with thiosulfate in, in uh, April. And then this year, I think maybe I lost some because of the kind of weather conditions we had. Seemed like I had a lot of nitrogen deficiency. We did not go back and put any more on. And we were averaging 115 pounds of nitrogen per acre and, and, and yield potential, I hope, of 150 to 160 bushel corn. Okay. Last year, we had 0.62 pound of nitrogen applied per bushel of corn. And the corn is grown on wheat stubble cover crop and then on corn. And then we plant soybeans and then wheat. Mm -hmm. And so, so we don't have any soybeans in that past crop. We got some legumes in the cover crop, but it's, we have more kind of grasses. Then, then uh, Pioneer uh, down in Texas, uh, they've, they've shown that you can put quite a bit of nitrogen on after pollination and have a real benefit. So with the pivot irrigation, those kind of things that we can wait. And, and I've, been, I've been saying for several years that you put the last application of nitrogen on after the silk's turned brown. And a lot of people question that. And then they say hybrids have changed, but, but not really. Mm -hmm. I think we just mismanaged things. And right. the idea that we you would know, put nitrogen on or anhydrous on after November 1st, when the salt temperature cools down, well, you still get conversion to nitrate and uh -huh. a whole bunch of things. So logistics is a problem. Now, 55 or 50 degree temperature on the fall application of nitrogen come about in the middle 60s because Illinois and Iowa and Wisconsin and Michigan, I think, were the four states that got together and said, 
we, we're going to have to start applying nitrogen in fall because there's no way we can get it all put on in the spring. So then they settled on 50, is it? And some people think that's a magic number. It has nothing to do. It's just a compromised number. Mm-hmm. And, and mineralization or, or microbial life goes on to freezing, and there's still a little bit of life after that. So we, we're probably not accomplishing what we want to. And so Well, we're seeing today, and you know, we measure our readers, I mean, only 11% are doing fall nitrogen applications anymore. So that continues to seem to go yeah. down. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing a pretty good split between spring pre-plant, at plant, and side dresses up to 75% of our guys are doing side dress applications. So and I haven't done that yet, but I'm thinking mm-hmm. about doing that. I think what would be interesting is foliar, what will happen there. I think we had about 14% of our guys doing foliar applications. but um, So I don't know if there's you see some real potential with that. And, and I have, have problems with some of the foliars because they're methylated ureas, so they don't burn the leaves. And then they're very expensive and for the amount of nitrogen that you get. Now, if there's some growth promoting or something, that's different. But, but I haven't seen that proof yet so mm-hmm. uh, if you have a problem you need to put something on that's a good idea but but otherwise I wouldn't I'd still plan on putting it in the ground sure sure <laughs> or through a pivot you know yep anything well um, maybe talk about P and K a little bit um, we see more fall application of that although it's probably only about a third of our guys are doing you know fall yeah. applications <laughs> so um, what what are some of the um, good things, good practices you see happening with P&K? What are some of the bad things? I'm, a, I'm, I'm an advocate of just broadcasting phosphorus and potassium and, and getting underneath the residue and, and, and where it's a grow out underneath there. And I was at an Urbana, Illinois meeting one time and the guy was saying, Roots don't grow in top two inches soil. I just yelled at him and said, if you'd stop cultivating, they would. So the, what worries me about the broadcast is the amount of phosphorus that might be getting in surface water that's going to Lake Erie or to the Gulf of Mexico. And we may have to change to knifing in the, the, the P and K. And then the spacing is what bothers me a little bit is, you know, I'd like to see it in 10, 10 or 12 inch spacing, you know, or closer if you could, but then you got too much tillage. But right now, uh, I think you get just as good a, because what, 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 what we're trying to do with the soil, I think, is, is build a soil up to fertility level where it performs well. And, and if you have a really good year, it performs well. If you have a poor year, you haven't hurt yourself because you, you haven't put too much on. Then if you have a bad year, you can not put it on. So, so it's a matter of maintaining a fertility level that's high enough that you won't, won't get response this year kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you're not contributing to the environment. And, and that's a kind of fine line. And I don't know if I have that line exactly right or not. And, and then you got to look at uh, different, different uh, soils around the country. And I was down at Clemson last week for a meeting and looking at their recommendations and potassium. And they call a medium test, I don't know, 70 to 120. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit higher, but pounds per acre. So that number 70, that's 35 part per million. Mm-hmm. Well, we're recommended for dry land up to 160 and irrigated up to 200. And then I'm wondering if, we're, if we should be higher than that. But they're, 
So their soils don't require as much potassium as maybe ours does, or maybe I'm way off base on what I'm recommending. <laughs> uh, we've got a lot of people stop from doing things when the soil tests are high, mm -hmm. which is was a kind of my game plan. You know, when we first started, I went around introducing myself to fertilizer dealers and had one comment was, well, you're not going to help the dealer, are you? When I said, I'm going to follow university guidelines and fertilizer <laughs> recommendations. And, and another guy said, well, can't you uh, recommend zero to 30 on K so I can sell 100 pounds of K mag to everybody? You know, just, that was the concept in 83. And, and you know what the farm economy is like. The guys are going broke just spending money on stuff that was kind of silly. And, and so we've tried to to overcome some of those things. I, and I think we've done a good job in the, in the Nebraska, kind of, you know, the, the state surrounding. Is stratification an issue for no-tillers? If I can say this, I, because I, it's stupid, stratification. Now, Mother Nature never did any tillage. So why the hell do we have to do any tillage? Because, mm -hmm. well, we're putting nutrients on, but she's putting nutrients, she's returning her stuff. It all goes on top. So it's a natural process, and the movement is natural going down, because what did the calcium, we don't say calcium moves, but the lime zone is down to two to three and a half or four feet, mm -hmm. uh, based on you know, the amount of rainfall areas. But so, so it's, a, it's timing and stratification. And the guys that say, well, you're no-till, so you gotta take a zero to four inch sample. Well, my God, the roots are growing down to six feet, so why would you compensate any? And the soil test is calibrated on zero to six or zero to eight by your state universities. Mm -hmm. and, and until that recalibration gets done, you, you'll be making mistakes if you're the guy that says, well, I'm no-tilling, so I'm only going to sample four inches. Well, right away you can say, yeah, my soil test went up when I started no-tilling. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you just sampled wrong. So you have to continue to sample that slice of soil that was where so that's kind of what we've always yeah. done and how it was calibrated right. until we get a new calibration. What do you see with infurrow and, and with, with phosphorus as a, as a practice? And the infurrow, and, and I remember saying this to Dr. Larry Murphy one time that as far as I'm concerned, the starter fertilizer is a management decision, has nothing to do with fertility. Uh, it makes, makes the crop look good early. And, and I tell farmers that that you have to have the, the mother-in-law field next to the highway. You always have to have it looking good all the time. <laughs> now on the back 40, you can take her back there in the harvest time and show her what the yield was. Mm -hmm. But you have to have this good looking corn up front. And the starter, the starter fertilizer will do that. I have too many guys that say, well, I've been using it and I haven't gotten any yield from it. And, and that's part of that reason I say that. But it looks, it grows much better early and you, you have the chance of getting better yields. I quit using it because I was more interested in getting phosphorus for the, that grow all the time. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, the, the root, the nutrient feeding is on the tip of the root. You know, the roots grow and in, in the, in the energy from the sun, the, the carbohydrates go down to the tip and that's where cell division is. Cells divide and then they elongate, and that's what pushes the root forward. Right behind that elongation, then uh, protrusions come out in every cell called root hairs. These are not branch roots, these are root hairs that are, most of the time are microscopic. And you have really big roots, you can sometimes see, see the root hairs, but most of the time you can't see them. And that's the absorption area for water and nutrients. And, as, and those last from 
24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So as the roots grow and your nutrients are always taken up at the, now on this on this root going up to the plant, there's branches coming up. So you have new branches coming out to feed on nutrients up here all the time too. Okay. So, but they're always feeding at the root tip. So so when you think about where do you place it, and the roots are growing everywhere in the soil. So, so the broadcast thing is kind of what I look at. So if we start banding, then you need to maybe put the band in different places every year. So, yeah. so in, 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 in the strip till or uh, in the ridge till, if they're putting all their fertilizer in the same place year after year, now strip till, sometimes they go halfway in between, so you get spread out. This right. Ridge till was always in that 30-inch mm -hmm. row. And, and then if the roots don't have anything out here, how do they make the plant perform? Because the cow has one mouth, but a, but a plant has lots of mouths. And I think that's, that's a difference in, in the nutrient level. So, so the idea that you can get the nutrient level up and then maintain it at a certain level, so yeah. the plant's always good. tuning into the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till authorities featured in the series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th through the 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. We've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer -farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights in 2020. Listeners of this podcast can receive a $20 registration discount by visiting notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC and entering code podcast20 at checkout. So it sounds like where you, especially when you talk about strip till, where you band it, um, because you, like you said, there may be with um, in-furrow applications, you may get yourself a boost, get your crop going quicker, get it off to a better start, but ultimately you're going to need other areas in the soil profile for, for fertilizer to be accessible. So. And I know in the early days, of course, everybody was using starter as, as a two-by-two mm -hmm. placement and, and up at South Dakota State, they'd get tremendous growth responses, mm -hmm. but when they'd harvest, a lot of times they, got, they might even get a yield reduction. Hmm. And, and then Paul Fixon, when he was at South Dakota State, in the, he was there when we moved here, I guess, in 83. And he was saying that if you're using a starter, if you went over 30 pounds in a starter, you'd start getting yield decreases. The curve would go up and then go back down. Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't feed the rest of the roots is my conclusion on that. But. Going to, let's go to like sulfur. For a minute. We've seen a lot more attention, it seems, and I think it's at least three quarters of our guys say they put down sulfur with their corn. About 40% say they do with soybeans, but yeah, good idea. Had, had we, had, was it overlooked for quite a while? Uh, were there sulfur yeah. shortages or what? There was, there was sulfur shortages and, and I was even hypocritical and 
some of because I was putting sulfur in my wheat before I was recommended to other people. And then I got caught really bad in southeast Nebraska. The guys had top-dressed wheat, you know, in, in the March time frame. And their wheat just turned bright yellow. And it was all sulfur deficient. And because and, uh, our soil test didn't recommend sulfur, but we recommended nitrogen and then we got caught. So, so I had to reevaluate the way I did that, made the recommendation. So we, rec we recommend a lot of sulfur now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just, I think it's critical. In fact, when I drive down the road, I can see fields that don't have sulfur on them. Has, has a lack of sulfur caused other issues and balances, some impacts of not having proper sulfur? The first, the first impact is that sulfur and nitrogen are both are in amino acids. So to build proteins, you have to have both. And when you, when you have a lack of sulfur, then you don't get the, the kind of all the proteins that you're supposed to get. I think that's, that's the most critical part of it. In, in the oil seeds, uh, they require a lot more sulfur. And so the soybeans, when you said that, about 40% are using sulfur in soybeans. I think they ought to be using sulfur in soybeans. And mm. it was just one of those things that a guy called me and over east, east north of Lincoln, and he was describing his corn. He'd been using nitrogen. and in between his terraces and on the hillside and the corn was yellow and couldn't figure out what he was doing wrong with his nitrogen. And man, I answered a lot of questions for him. They're probably on the phone for about <coughs> 10 minutes. And finally I said, you have a sulfur deficiency. Because <laughs> I you know, asked him to put sulfur on. And then the next week, another guy in the same area called and his soybeans are yellow on those hillsides. And, and, it, and it was the same darn thing. And, and so that's how, you know, I started promoting sulfur more. And then we, get, we changed the sulfur recommendations on wheat also. But I think that that's probably the, the most critical one that people are missing. Yeah. Now, around industrial places, you're probably okay yet. But, but we've cleaned up the air so much, you right. know, and all that. And when I was in school in the, in the you know, that 50s time frame, Bob Fox, our soil chemistry teacher, he told us there was a rail, and that's a, it's a, it's a hike trail on northern Nebraska that goes up through Norfolk to O'Neill up there. Two, two miles on either side of that track, there's no sulfur deficiency in the small grains because of coal. The trains at that time run on yeah. coal. And uh, then the rest of the area was, was sandy soil, so sulfur deficient. And we knew about those things a long time ago. but. Mm -hmm. But then my, my major professor for my master's degree, at, when I was at Dodge City, I made fertilizer recommendation moving to the computer, and I had some equations. And, and so I called him and see which way to go on sulfur recommendation. Mm -hmm. he, he said, use the lower one, which was a mistake. And, and uh, over time, we finally figured it out. Mm -hmm. Any preferences on forms of sulfur, timing of application? Uh, I guess I, w I prefer a sulfate form or a thiosulfate liquid, but... Uh, I really don't like elemental sulfur. I just don't think it mineralizes fast enough mm. because, you know, microbes got to convert it all to sulfate. And you'll see the sulfur, you know, sulfate response. If you use ammonium sulfate or K-mag or ammonium thiosulfate. You know, micronutrients have really seemed like they've gotten a lot more focus and we've seen growers increase their applications of them, and I think of a couple of them, zinc and boron, as a couple that we've really seen, um, like 60% of our 
farmers are applying zinc to corn. And probably 10 years ago, the number was a lot less. What have you seen with micronutrients and the, the attention that's being paid to them right now? And of course, with the new uh, soil in uh, instrumentation, we've been able to run you know, zinc, iron, manganese, copper, and, mm -hmm. and then boron, and, and we run molybdenum once in a while too. But the one that concerns me most probably is, is manganese. It seems to be getting lower and lower all the time. And, and, then, and then boron is, there's some areas that are, soils are pretty low in boron, it's, which is really surprising. We had customers in Northeast Nebraska that asked to run boron and I couldn't believe how low they were. So all their grids now, are, we run boron on those with them. Mm -hmm. Manganese in, down, you get on the Republican River, you know, down toward the end of Kansas. There's more, and then when you get south of there, manganese is higher. But, and, and then I wonder how much of that is tied maybe to glyphosate or something like that. that well, maybe one final question is you, you think about, and we, there is a lot of pressure today uh, from an environmental standpoint, and more and more, you might even say some media out there in the consumer media has made it clear of some of the issues that we see in our waters yeah. and, and what we're losing and uh, a lot of finger pointing at farmers. Obviously, we know there's, there's a lot of people who can share on that, whether it's you know, people who own their homes and are putting a lot of nutrients on their lawns that could run off or whether it's industry and that. Yeah. But I feel like farmers are, are overall being more responsible just from what you see in people testing and what they're doing with you and what they're trying to get a balance yeah. in, in, their, in, their, in their management programs. I think, you know, Nick and I made the comment with, you know, re review soils every day and, and we have very few residual nitrate levels above five part per million, which is kind of our, we want to be below that. And so we think that the farmers are really doing a great job managing nitrogen in comparison to what's been done in the past. And, and, and so, Darrell, when you think about some of those things, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, if it's majority or not, there's a whole bunch of farmers that are doing a good job environmentally. And there's a bunch of farmers that have rhetoric about leaving the farm better than what they took it. If they're growing 300 bushel corn now or they used to grow 100, is that better? It's more productive, but, but the expenses they're putting into it and all that. So, so the judging of who's doing a good job and that kind of thing, uh, it's, a, it's, it's progressing, it's getting better. Uh, I don't have a feeling for how fast it's getting better, but, but, but I see a lot better, a lot mm -hmm. better things. And, and, and of course, the tillage thing is the number one, is that you drive down a road now and you don't see any tillage, and that's good. <laughs> in fact, at, at one time, was when, we were, when we got in no-till and driving down a road, my wife would holler, don't look, because <laughs> some guy was tilling. <laughs> I think the other part of it, Mother Nature is going to make us be better environmentalists. Because I don't think we can continue to battle all this stuff with chemicals. And we're going to have to learn diversity in, in cropping and in those things. Mm -hmm. and, and the young people trying to get into agriculture now, and I, and I encourage a lot of them to to uh, start start small and start producing things that people want. And, 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 and then you got, I have a grandson, that he's a senior at UNL. He told us at his sister's wedding last fall that 
he will not eat anything from a factory farm. Now, there's a market for a whole bunch of people, younger people, that could care less what the food cost is. They want healthy food, and, and that's produced in an environmentally safe and, and healthy way. So uh, there, there's, there's some young people that have, I'm encouraging to get started on this, and, and I think there's some of these things happening. Then you got the internet to sell stuff in, in the upscale restaurants, and right. and then in the then that builds, and you can get other customers in in urban areas that that would take that. How much of that? And then people argue, well, we can't feed the world doing those things, but at the same time, we can get sure to get a lot healthier food than what we got right now. Mm -hmm. I think. Right. You know, I read too much stuff on Facebook, so I. You don't know what's true and what isn't, but man, some of it's bad and makes you wonder. And so we we uh, need to do a better job. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Question from a reader was: What's the typical return on investment by moving from conventional tillage to no-till? for many growers in the Corn Belt area. There's no real answer to this. Uh, we've had a number of no-tillers tell us that they see at least a $50 advantage for moving the no-till. And we've had others who say that there's at least a $100 per acre advantage. The big advantage is keeping the residue on the surface. And I've had some no-tillers tell me they wouldn't bail off the residue and sell it to somebody even if they were offered as much as $60 per ton. Thanks to Daryl Bregging, Ray Ward, and Frank Lesseter for today's No-Till Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakegerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesnar and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.